CD5 Who is this fun? No, fun isn't anybody. Fun is what you have. We are having fun. I thought I was, said his lordship uncertainly. The voice by his ear was vaguely worrying him. It appeared to be arriving directly into his brain. What is this fun? This is... To kick vigorously is fun? Well, part of the fun. Kick. To hear loud music in hot rooms is fun? Possibly. How is this fun manifest? Well, it, look, either you're having fun or you're not. You don't have to ask me, you just... No, all right. How did you get in here anyway, he added. Are you a friend of the patrician? Let us say he puts business my way. I felt I ought to learn something of human pleasures. Sounds like you've got a long way to go. I know. Please excuse my lamentable ignorance. I wish only to learn. All these people, please, they are having fun? Yes. Then this is fun. I'm glad we've got that sorted out. Mind the chair, snapped Lord Rodley, who was now feeling very unfunny and unpleasantly sober. A voice behind him said quietly, This is fun. To drink excessively is fun. We are having fun. He is having fun. This is some fun. What fun? Behind death, the patrician's small pet swamp dragon held on grimly to the bony hips and thought, Guards or no guards, next time we pass an open window, I'm going to run like buggery. Kaylee sat bolt upright in bed. Don't move another step, she said. Guards? We couldn't stop him, said the first guard, poking his head shamefacedly round the doorpost. He just pushed in, said the other guard from the other side of the doorway. And the wizard said it was all right, and we were told everyone must listen to him, because... All right, all right. People could get murdered around here, said Kaylee testily, and put the crossbow back on the bedside table without, unfortunately, operating the safety catch. There was a click the thwack of sinew against metal, a zip of air and a groan. The groan came from Cutwell. Mort spun round him. Are you all right? he said. Did it hit you? No, said the wizard weakly. No, it didn't. How do you feel? A bit tired. Why? Oh, nothing. Nothing. No drafts anywhere. No slight leaking feelings. No. Why? Oh, nothing. Nothing. Cutwell turned and looked closely at the wall behind Mort. "'Aren't the dead allowed any peace?' said Kaylee bitterly. "'I thought one thing you could be sure of when you were dead was a good night's sleep.' She looked as though she'd been crying. With an insight that surprised him, Mort realised that she knew this, and that it was making her even angrier than before. "'That's not really fair,' he said. "'I've come to help. Isn't that right, Cutwell?' "'Hm?' said Cutwell, who had found the crossbow bolt buried in the plaster, and was looking at it with deep suspicion." Oh, yes, he has. It won't work, though. Excuse me, has anyone got any string? Help, snapped Kaylee. Help? If it wasn't for you, you'd still be dead, said Mort. She looked at him with her mouth open.
I wouldn't know about it, though, she said. That's the worst part. I think you two had better go, said Cutwell to the guards, who were trying to appear inconspicuous. But I'll have that spear, please. Thank you. Look, said Mort, I've got a horse outside. You'd be amazed. I can take you anywhere. You don't have to wait around here. You don't know much about monarchy, do you? said Kay Lee. Um, no. She means better to be a dead queen in your own castle than a live commoner somewhere else, said Cutwell, who had stuck the spear into the wall by the bolt and was trying to sight along it. Wouldn't work, anyway. The dome isn't centred on the palace. It's centred on her. On who? said Kay Lee. Her voice could have kept milk fresh for a month. On her highness, said Cutwell, automatically squinting along the shaft. Don't you forget it. I won't forget it, but that's not the point, said the wizard. He pulled the bolt out of the plaster and tested the point with his finger. But if you stay here, you'll die, said Mort. Then I shall have to show the disc how a queen can die, said Kelly, looking as proud as was possible in a pink-knitted bed jacket. Mort sat down on the end of the bed with his head in his hands. I know how a queen can die, he muttered. They die just like other people, and some of us would rather not see it happen. Excuse me, I just want to look at this crossbow, said Cutwell conversationally, reaching across them. Don't mind me. I shall go proudly to meet my destiny, said Kay Lee. But there was the barest flicker of uncertainty in her voice. No, you won't. I mean, I know what I'm talking about. Take it from me. There's nothing proud about it. You just die. Yes, but it's how you do it. I shall die nobly like Queen Ezreal. Mort's forehead wrinkled. History was a closed book to him. Who's she? She lived in Clatch, and she had a lot of lovers, and she sat on a snake, said Cutwell, who was winding up the crossbow. She meant to. She was crossed in love. All I can remember was that she used to take baths in asses' milk. Funny thing, history, said Cutwell reflectively. You become a queen, reign for thirty years, make laws, declare war on people, and then the only thing you get remembered for is that you smelled like yoghurt and you were bitten in the... She's a distant ancestor of mine, snapped Kelly. I won't listen to this sort of thing. Will you both be quiet and listen to me? shouted Mort. Silence descended like a shroud. Then Cutwell sighted carefully and shot Mort in the back. The night shed its early casualties and journeyed onwards. Even the wildest parties had ended, their guests lurching home to their beds, or someone's bed at any rate. Shorn of these fellow travellers, mere daytime people who had strayed out of their temporal turf, the true survivors of the night got down to the serious commerce of the dark. This wasn't so very different from Ark Morpork's daytime business, except that the knives were more obvious and people didn't smile so much. The shades were silent, save only for the whistled signals of thieves and the velvety hush of dozens of people going about their private business in careful silence. And, in Ham Alley... Cripplewar's famous floating crap game was just getting underway. Several dozen cowled figures knelt or squatted around the little circle of packed earth where Wa's three eight-sided dice bounced and spun their misleading lesson in statistical probability. Three! Tufal's eyes by Eo. He's got you there, Hummock. This guy knows how to roll his bones. It's a knack. Hummock McGuck a small, flat-faced man from one of the hublandish tribes whose skillet dice was famed wherever two men gathered together to fleece a third, picked up the dice and glared at them. He silently cursed War, whose own skillet switching dice was equally notorious among the cognoscenti but had apparently failed him, 
wished a painful and untimely death on the shadowy player seated opposite, and hurled the dice into the mud. Twenty-one the hard way! Wah scooped up the dice and handed them to the stranger. As he turned to Hummock, one eye flickered ever so slightly. Hummock was impressed. He'd barely noticed the blur in Wah's deceptively gnarled fingers, and he'd been watching for it. It was disconcerting the way the things rattled in the stranger's hand, and then flew out of it in a slow arc that ended with twenty-four little spots pointing at the stars. Some of the more streetwise in the crowd shuffled away from the stranger, because luck like that can be very unlucky in Cripplewar's floating crap game. Wah's hand closed over the dice with a noise like the click of a trigger. All the eights, he breathed. Such luck is uncanny, mister. The rest of the crowd evaporated like dew, leaving only those heavy-set, unsympathetic-looking men who, if Wah had ever paid tax, would have gone down on his return as essential plant and business equipment. Maybe it's not luck, he added. Maybe it's wizarding? I most strongly resent that. We had a wizard once who tried to get rich, said Wah. Can't seem to remember what happened to him. Boys? We give him a good talking to, and left him in Pork Passage. And in Honey Lane. And a couple of other places I can't remember. The stranger stood up. The boys closed in around him. This is uncalled for. I seek only to learn. What pleasure can humans find in a mere reiteration of the laws of chance? Chance? Don't come into it. Let's have a look at him, boys. The events that followed were recalled by no living soul except the one belonging to a feral cat, one of the city's thousands that were crossing the alley en route to a tryst. It stopped and watched with interest. The boys froze in mid-stab. Painful purple light flickered around them. The stranger pushed his hood back and picked up the dice and then pushed them into Wah's unresisting hand. The man was opening and shutting his mouth, his eyes unsuccessfully trying not to see what was in front of them. Grinning. Throw! Wah managed to look down at his hand. What are the stakes? he whispered. If you win, you will refrain from these ridiculous attempts to suggest that chance governs the affairs of men. Yes, yes, and if I lose? You will wish you had won. Wah tried to swallow, but his throat had gone dry. I know I've had lots of people murdered. Twenty-three, to be precise. Is it too late to say I'm sorry? Such things do not concern me. Now throw the dice. Wah shut his eyes and dropped the dice onto the ground, too nervous even to try the special flick-and-twist throw. He kept his eyes shut. All the eights. There, that wasn't too difficult, was it? Wah fainted. Death shrugged and walked away, pausing only to tickle the ears of an alley cat that happened to be passing. He hummed to himself. He didn't quite know what had come over him, but he was enjoying it. You couldn't be sure it would work. Cutwell spread his hands in a conciliatory gesture. Well, no, he conceded, but I thought, what have I got to lose? He backed away. 
What have you got to lose? shouted Mort. He stamped forward and tugged the bolt out of one of the posts in the princess's bed. You're not going to tell me this went through me, he snapped. I was particularly watching it, said Cutwell. I saw it too, said Kaylee. It was horrible. It came right out of where your heart is. And I saw you walk through a stone pillar, said Cutwell. And I saw you ride straight through a window. Yes, but that was on business, declared Mort, waving his hands in the air. That wasn't every day. That's different. And he paused. The way you're looking at me, he said, they looked at me the same way at the inn this evening. What's wrong? It was the way you waved your arms straight through the bedpost, said Kelly faintly. Mort stared at his hand and then wrapped it on the wood. See, he said, solid, solid arm, solid wood. You said people looked at you in an inn, said Cutwell. What did you do then, walk through the wall? No, I mean, no, I just drank this drink. I think it was called Scrumble. Scumble? Yes, tastes like rotten apples. You'd have thought it was some sort of poison the way they kept staring. How much did you drink then? said Cutwell. A point, perhaps. I wasn't really paying much attention. Did you know that Scumble is the strongest alcoholic drink between here and the Ramtops? the wizard demanded. No, no one said, said Mort. What's it got to do with... No, said Cutwell slowly. You didn't know. Hmm. That's a clue, isn't it? Has it got anything to do with saving the princess? Probably not. I'd like to have a look in my books, though. In that case, it's not important, said Mort firmly. He turned to Kay Lee, who was looking at him with the faint beginnings of admiration. I think I can help, he said. I think I can lay my hands on some powerful magic. Magic will hold back the dome, won't it, Cutwell? My magic won't. It'd have to be pretty strong stuff, and I'm not sure about it even then. Reality is tougher than... I shall go, said Mort. Until tomorrow, farewell. It is tomorrow, Kay Lee pointed out. Mort deflated slightly. All right, tonight then, he said, slightly put out, and added, I will be gone. Be gone what? It's hero talk, said Cutwell kindly. He can't help it. Mort scowled at him and smiled bravely at Kaylee and walked out of the room. He might have opened the door, said Kaylee, after he had gone. I think he was a bit embarrassed, said Cutwell. We all go through that stage. What, of walking through things? In a manner of speaking, walking into them anyway. I'm going to get some sleep, Kaylee said. Even the dead need some rest. Cutwell, stop fiddling with that crossbow, please. I'm sure it's not wizardly to be alone in a lady's boudoir. Hmm? But I'm not alone, am I? You're here. That, she said, is the point, isn't it? Oh, yes, sorry. Um, I'll see you in the morning, then. Good night, Cutwell. Shut the door behind you. The sun crept over the horizon, decided to make a run for it, and began to rise but it would be some time before its slow light rolled across the sleeping disc, herding the night ahead of it, and nocturnal shadows still ruled the city. They clustered now around the mended drum in Filigree Street, foremost of the city's taverns. It was famed not for its beer, which looked like maiden's water and tasted like battery acid, but for its clientele. It was said that if you sat long enough in the drum, then sooner or later every major hero on the disc would steal your horse. 
The atmosphere inside was still loud with talk and heavy with smoke, although the landlord was doing all those things landlords do when they think it's time to close, like turning some of the lights out, wind up the clock, put a cloth over the pumps, and just in case, check the whereabouts of their club with the nails hammered in it. Not that the customers were taking the slightest bit of notice, of course. To most of the drum's clientele, even the nailed club would have been considered a mere hint. However, they were sufficiently observant to be vaguely worried by the tall, dark figure standing by the bar and drinking his way through its entire contents. Lonely, dedicated drinkers always generate a mental field which ensures complete privacy, but this particular one was radiating a kind of fatalistic gloom that was slowly emptying the bar. This didn't worry the barman because the lonely figure was engaged in a very expensive experiment. Every drinking place throughout the multiverse has them, those shelves of weirdly shaped, sticky bottles that not only contain exotically named liquid, which is often blue or green, but also odds and ends that bottles of real drink would never stoop to contain, such as whole fruits, bits of twig, and in extreme cases, small drowned lizards. No one knows why barmen stock so many, since they all taste like treacle dissolved in turpentine. It has been speculated that they dream of a day when someone will walk in off the street unbidden and ask for a glass of peach corniche with a hint of mint, and overnight the place will become somewhere to be seen at. The stranger was working his way along the row. What is that green one? The landlord peered at the label. It says it's melon brandy, he said doubtfully. It says it's bottled by some monks to an ancient recipe, he added. I will try it. The man looked sideways at the empty glasses on the counter, some of them still containing bits of fruit salad, cherries on a stick, and small paper umbrellas. Are you sure you haven't had enough? he said. It worried him vaguely that he couldn't seem to make out the stranger's face. The glass, with its drink crystallising on the sides, disappeared into the hood and came out again empty. No. What is the yellow one with the wasps in it? Spring cordial, it says. Yes? Yes. And then the blue one with the gold flecks. Um, old overcoat? Yes. And then the second row. Uh, which one did you have in mind? All of them. The stranger remained bolt upright, the glasses with their burdens of syrup and assorted vegetation disappearing into the hood on a production line basis. This is it, the landlord thought. This is style. This is where I buy a red jacket and maybe put some monkey nuts and a few gherkins on the counter, get a few mirrors round the place, replace the sawdust. He picked up a beer-soaked cloth and gave the woodwork a few enthusiastic wipes, spreading the drips from the cordial glasses into a rainbow smear that took the varnish off. The last of the usual customers put on his hat and staggered out, muttering to himself. I don't see the point, the stranger said. Sorry? What is supposed to happen? How many drinks have you had? Forty-seven. Just about anything, then, said the barman, and because he knew his job and knew what was expected of him when people drank alone in the small hours, he started to polish a glass with the slops cloth and said, You're a lady thrown you out, then, has she? Pardon? Drowning your sorrows, are you? I have no sorrows. No, of course not. Forget I mentioned it. He gave the glass a few more wipes. Just thought it helps to have someone to talk to, he said. The stranger was silent for a moment, thinking. Then he said, You want to talk to me? 
Yes, sure, I'm, I'm a good listener. No one ever wanted to talk to me before. That's a shame. They never invite me to parties, you know. They all hate me. Everyone hates me. I don't have a single friend. Everyone ought to have a friend, said the barman sagely. I think... Yes? I think... I think I could be friends with the green bottle. The landlord slid the octagon bottle along the counter. Death took it and tilted it over the glass. The liquid tinkled on the rim. You drunk, I think, don't you? I serve anyone who can stand upright best out of three, said the landlord. You're absolutely right, but I... The stranger paused, one declamatory finger in the air. Uh, was what I saying? You said I thought you were drunk. Ah, yes, but I can be a shoba any time I like. This is an experiment, and now would I like to experiment with the orange brandy again? The landlord sighed and glanced at the clock. There was no doubt that he was making a lot of money, especially since the stranger didn't seem inclined to worry about overcharging or short change. But it was getting late. In fact, it was getting so late that it was getting early. There was also something about the solitary customer that unsettled him. People in the mended drum often drank as though there was no tomorrow, but this was the first time he'd actually felt they might be right. I mean, what have I got to look forward to? Where's the sense in it all? What is it really all about? Can't say, my friend, except you'll feel better after a good night's sleep. Sleep, sleep, I never sleep. I'm, what's name, proverbial for it. Everyone needs their sleep, even me, he hinted. They all hate me, you know. Yes, you said, but it's a quarter to three. The stranger turned unsteadily and looked around the silent room. There's no one in the place but you and I, he said. The landlord lifted up the flap and came around the bar, helping the stranger down from his stool. I haven't got a single friend. Even cats find me amusing. A hand shot out and grabbed a bottle of Amanita liqueur before the man managed to propel its owner to the door, wondering how someone so thin could be so heavy. I don't have to be drunk, I said. Why do people like to be drunk? Is it fun? Helps them forget about life, old chap. Now, just you leave there while I get the door open. Forget about life. Ah, ah. You come back any time you like, you hear? You'd really like to see me again? The landlord looked back at the small heap of coins on the bar. That was worth a little weirdness. At least this one was a quiet one and seemed to be harmless. Oh, yes, he said, propelling the stranger into the street and retrieving the bottle in one smooth movement. Drop in any time. That's the nicest thing. The door slammed on the rest of the sentence. Isabel sat up in bed. The knocking came again, soft and urgent. She pulled the covers up to her chin. Who is it? she whispered. It's me, Mort, came the hiss under the door. Let me in, please. Wait. 
Isabel scrambled frantically on the bedside table for the matches, knocking over a bottle of toilet water and dislodging a box of chocolates that was now mostly discarded wrappers. Once she'd got the candle alight, she adjusted its position for maximum effect, tweaked the line of her nightdress into something more revealing, and said, It's not locked. Mort staggered into the room, smelling of horses and frost and scumble. I hope, said Isabel archly, that you have not forced your way in here in order to take advantage of your position in this household. Mort looked around him. Isabel was heavily into frills. Even the dressing room table seemed to be wearing a petticoat. The whole room wasn't so much furnished as lingeried. Look, I haven't got time to mess around, he said. Bring that candle into the library, and for heaven's sake, put on something sensible. You're overflowing. Isabel looked down, and then her head snapped up. Well, Mort poked his head back round the door. It's a matter of life and death, he added, and disappeared. Isabel watched the door creak shut after him, revealing the blue dressing gown with the tassels that Death had thought up for her as a present, last Hogswatch, and which she hadn't the heart to throw away, despite the fact that it was a size too small and had a rabbit on the pocket. Finally, she swung her legs out of bed, slipped into the shameful dressing gown, and padded out into the corridor. Mort was waiting for her. Won't father hear us? she said. He's not back. Come on. How can you tell? The place feels different when he's here. It's it's like the difference between a coat when it's being worn and when it's hanging on a hook. Haven't you noticed? What are we doing that's so important? Mort pushed open the library door. A gust of warm, dry air drifted out, and the door hinges issued a protesting creak. We're going to save someone's life, he said. A princess, actually. Isabel was instantly fascinated. A real princess? I mean, can she feel a pea through a dozen mattresses? Can she? Mort felt a minor worry disappear. Oh, yes. I thought Albert had got it all wrong. Are you in love with her? Mort came to a standstill between the shelves, aware of the busy little scritchings inside the book covers. It's hard to be sure, he said. Do I look it? You look a bit flustered. How does she feel about you? Don't know. Ah, said Isabel knowingly, in the tones of an expert. Unrequited love is the worst kind. It's probably not a good idea to go taking poison or killing yourself, though, she added thoughtfully. What are we doing here? Do you want to find her book and see if she marries you? I've read it and she's dead, said Mort, but only technically. I mean, not really dead. Good, otherwise that would be necromancy. What are we looking for? Albert's biography. What for? I don't think he's got one. Everyone's got one. Well, he doesn't like people asking personal questions. I looked for it once and I couldn't find it. Albert by itself isn't much to go on. Why is he so interesting? Isabel lit a couple of candles from the one in her hand and filled the library with dancing shadows. I need a powerful wizard, and I think he's one. What, Albert? Yes, only we're looking for Alberto Malik. He's more than 2,000 years old, I think. What? Albert? Yes, Albert. He never wears a wizard's hat, said Isabel doubtfully. He lost it. Anyway, the hat isn't compulsory. Where do we start looking? Well, if you're sure. The stack, I suppose. That's where Father puts all the biographies that are more than 500 years old. It's this way. She led the way past the whispering shelves to a door set in a cul-de-sac. It opened with some effort, and the groan of the hinges reverberated around the library. 
Mort fancied for a moment that all the books paused momentarily in their work just to listen. Steps led down into the velvet gloom. There were cobwebs and dust, and air that smelled as though it had been locked in a pyramid for a thousand years. People don't come down here very often, said Isabel. I'll lead the way. Mort felt something was owed. I must say, he said, you're a real brick. You mean pink, square and dumpy? You really know how to talk to a girl, my boy. Mort, said Mort, automatically. The stack was as dark and silent as a cave deep underground. The shelves were barely far enough apart for one person to walk between them and towered up well beyond the dome of candlelight. They were particularly eerie because they were silent. There were no more lives to write. The books slept. But Mort felt that they slept like cats with one eye open. They were aware. I came down here once, said Isabel, whispering. If you go far enough along the shelves, the books run out, and there's clay tablets and lumps of stone and animal skins, and everyone's called Ugg and Zog. The silence was almost tangible. Mort could feel the books watching them as they tramped through the hot, silent passages. Everyone who had ever lived was here somewhere, right back to the first people that the gods had baked out of mud or whatever. They didn't exactly resent him. They were just wondering about why he was here. Did you get past Ugganzog? he hissed. There's a lot of people would be very interested to know what's there. I got frightened. It's a long way and I didn't have enough candles. Pity. Isabel stopped so sharply that Mort cannoned into the back of her. This would be about the right area, she said. What now? Mort peered at the faded names on the spines. They don't seem to be in any order, he moaned. They looked up. They wandered down a couple of side alleys. They pulled a few books off the lowest shelves at random, raising pillows of dust. This is silly, said Mort at last. There is millions of lives here. The chances of finding his are worse than... Isabel laid her hand against his mouth. Listen. Mort mumbled a bit through her fingers and then got the message. He strained his ears, striving to hear anything above the heavy hiss of absolute silence. And then he found it. A faint, irritable scratching. High, high overhead, somewhere in the impenetrable darkness on the cliff of shelves, a life was still being written. They looked at each other, their eyes widening. Then Isabel said, We passed a ladder back there on wheels. The little casters on the bottom squeaked as Mort rolled it back. The top end moved too, as if it was fixed to another set of wheels somewhere up in the darkness. Right, he said, give me the candle and... If the candle's going up, then so am I, said Isabel firmly. You stop down here and move the ladder when I say, and don't argue. It might be dangerous up there, said Mort gallantly. It might be dangerous down here, Isabel pointed out, so I'll be up the ladder with the candle. Thank you. She set her foot on the bottom rung, and was soon no more than a frilly shadow outlined in a halo of candlelight that soon began to shrink. Mort steadied the ladder and tried not to think of all the lives pressing in on him. Occasionally a meteor of hot wax would thump onto the floor beside him, raising a crater in the dust. Isabel was now a faint glow far above, and he could feel every footstep as it vibrated down the ladder. She stopped. It seemed to be quiet for a long time. Then her voice floated down, deadened by the weight of silence around them. Mort, I've found it. Good, bring it down. Mort, you were right. OK, thanks. No, 
Bring it down. Yes, Mort. But which one? Don't mess about. That candle won't last much longer. Mort. What? Mort, there's a whole shelf. Now it really was dawn, the cusp of the day that belonged to no one except the seagulls in Moorpork docks, the tide that rolled in up the river, and a warm, turnwise wind that added a smell of spring to the complex odour of the city. Death sat on a bollard looking out to sea. He had decided to stop being drunk. It made his head ache. He tried fishing, dancing, gambling and drink, allegedly four of life's greatest pleasures, and wasn't sure that he saw the point. Food he was happy with. Death liked a good meal as much as anyone else. He couldn't think of any other pleasures of the flesh, or rather he could, but they were, well, fleshy, and he couldn't see how it would be possible to go about them without some major bodily restructuring, which he wasn't going to contemplate. Besides, humans seemed to leave off doing them as they grew older, so presumably they couldn't be that attractive. Death began to feel that he wouldn't understand people as long as he lived. The sun made the cobbles steam, and death felt the faintest tingling of that little springtime urge that can send a thousand tons of sap pumping through fifty feet of timber in a forest. The seagulls swooped and dived around him. A one-eyed cat, down to its eighth life and its last ear, emerged from its lair in a heap of abandoned fish boxes, stretched, yawned, and rubbed itself against his legs. The breeze cutting through Ankh's famous smell brought a hint of spices and fresh bread. Death was bewildered. He couldn't fight it. He was actually feeling glad to be alive, and very reluctant to be deaf. I must be sickening for something, he thought. Mort eased himself up the ladder alongside Isabel. It was shaky, but seemed to be safe. At least the height didn't bother him. Everything below was just blackness. Some of Albert's earlier volumes were very nearly falling apart. He reached out for one at random, feeling the ladder tremble underneath them as he did so, brought it back and opened it somewhere in the middle. Move the candle this way, he said. Can you read it? Sort of. Turnard, his hand, but was sorely vexed that all the men at last come to nought, viz. deathy, and vowed himy to seek immortality in his pride. Thus, he told ye the youngy wizards, we may take unto ourselves the mantle of goddies, the next day it being raining. Alberto. It's written in old, he said, before they invented spelling. Let's have a look at the latest one. It was Albert, all right. Mort caught several references to fried bread. Let's have a look at what he's doing now, said Isabel. You think we should? It's a bit like spying. So what? Scared? All right. He flicked through until he came to the unfilled pages and then turned back until he found the story of Albert's life crawling across the page at surprising speed considering it was the middle of the night. Most biographers didn't have much to say about sleep, unless the dreams were particularly vivid. Hold the candle properly, will you? I don't want to get grease on his life. Why not? He likes grease. Stop giggling, you'll have us both off. Now, look at this bit. He crept through the dusty darkness of the stack, Isabel read, his eyes fixed on the tiny glow of candlelight high above. Prying, he thought, poking away at things that shouldn't concern them, the little devils. 
Mort, he's... Shut up, I'm reading. Soon put a stop to this. Albert crept silently to the foot of the ladder, spat on his hands, and got ready to push. The master'd never know he was acting strange these days, and it was all that lad's fault, and... Mort looked up into Isabel's horrified eyes. Then the girl took the book out of Mort's hand, held it at arm's length while her gaze remained fixed woodenly on his, and let it go. Mort watched her lips move, and then realised that he, too, was counting under his breath. Three, four. There was a dull thump and a muffled cry, and silence. "'Do you think you've killed him?' said Mort, after a while. "'What, here? Anyway, I didn't notice any better ideas coming from you.' No, but he is an old man, after all. No, he's not, said Isabel sharply, starting down the ladder. Two thousand years? Not a day over sixty-seven. The book said, I told you time doesn't apply here, not real time. Don't you listen, boy? Mort, said Mort. And stop treading on my fingers. I'm going as fast as I can. Sorry. And don't act so wet. Have you any idea how boring it is living here? Probably not, said Mort, adding with genuine longing. I've heard about boredom, but I've never had a chance to try it. It's dreadful. If it comes to that, excitement isn't all it's cracked up to be. Anything's got to be better than this. There was a groan from below, and then a stream of swear words. Isabel peered into the gloom. Obviously I didn't damage his cursing muscles, she said. I don't think I ought to listen to words like that. It could be bad for my moral fibre. They found Albert slumped against the foot of the bookshelf, muttering and holding his arm. There's no need to make that kind of fuss, said Isabel briskly. You're not hurt. Father simply doesn't allow that kind of thing to happen. What did you have to go and do that for? he moaned. I didn't mean any harm. You were going to push us off, said Mort, trying to help him up. I read it. I'm surprised you didn't use magic. Albert glared at him. Oh, so you found out, have you? he said quietly. Then much good may it do you. You've no right to go prying. He struggled to his feet, shook off Mort's hand, and stumbled back along the hushed shelves. No, wait, said Mort. I need your help. Well, of course, said Albert over his shoulder. It stands to reason, doesn't it? You thought I'll just go and pry into someone's private life, and then I'll drop it on him, and then I'll ask him to help me. I only wanted to find out if you were really you, said Mort, running after him. I am. Everyone is. But if you don't help me, something terrible will happen. There's this princess, and she... Terrible things happen all the time, boy. Mort! And no one expects me to do anything about it. But you were the greatest! Albert stopped for a moment, but he did not look round. Was the greatest. Was the greatest. And don't you try and butter me up. I ain't butterable. They've got statues to you and everything, said Mort, trying not to yawn. More fool them, then. Albert reached the foot of the steps into the library proper, stamped up them, and stood outlined against the candlelight from the library. You mean you won't help, said Mort, not even if you can. Give the boy a prize, growled Albert, and it's no good thinking you can appeal to my better nature under this here crusty exterior he added, "'cause my interior's pretty damn crusty, too.' They heard him cross the library floor, as though he had a grudge against it, and slam the door behind him. "'Well,' said Mort uncertainly, well, "'what did you expect? 
snapped Isabel. He doesn't care for anyone much except father. It's just that I thought someone like him would help if I explained it properly, said Mort. He zagged. The rush of energy that had propelled him through the long night had evaporated, filling his mind with lead. You know, he was a famous wizard. That doesn't mean anything. Wizards aren't necessarily nice. Do not meddle in the affairs of wizards because a refusal often offends, I read somewhere. Isabel stepped closer to Mort and peered at him with some concern. You look like something left on a plate, she said. Mm, okay, said Mort, walking heavily up the steps and into the scratching shadows of the library. You're not. You could do with a good night's sleep, my lad. Mort, murmured Mort. He felt Isabel slip his arm over her shoulder. The walls were moving gently, even the sound of his own voice was coming from a long way off, and he dimly felt how nice it would be to stretch out on a nice stone slab and sleep forever. Death would be back soon, he told himself, feeling his unprotesting body being helped along the corridors. There was nothing for it, he'd have to tell Death. He wasn't such a bad old stick, Death would help. All he needed to do was explain things, and then he could stop all this worrying and go to sleep. And what was your previous position? I beg your pardon? What did you do for a living? said the thin young man behind the desk. The figure opposite him shifted uneasily. I ushered souls into the next world. I was the grave of all hope. I was the ultimate reality. I was the assassin against whom no lock would hold. Yes, point taken, but do you have any particular skills? Death thought about it. I suppose a certain amount of expertise with agricultural implements, he ventured after a while. The young man shook his head firmly. No. And this is a city, Mr... Um... He glanced down and once again felt a faint unease that he couldn't quite put his finger on. Mr... Um, Mr... Mr... And uh, we're a bit short of fields. He laid down his pen and gave the kind of smile that suggested he'd learned it from a book. Ankh Morpork wasn't advanced enough to possess an employment exchange. People took jobs because their fathers made room for them, or because their natural talent found an opening, or by word of mouth. But there was a call for servants and menial workers, and with the commercial sections of the city beginning to boom, the thin young man, a Mr Leona Keeble, had invented the profession of job broker and was, right at this moment, finding it difficult. My dear Mr... Um, he glanced down. Mr... <laughs> we get many people coming into this city from outside because, alas, they believe life is richer here. Excuse me for saying so, but you seem to me to be a gentleman down on his luck. I would have thought you would have preferred something rather more refined than... He glanced down again and frowned. Something nice working with cats or flowers. I'm sorry. I felt it was time for a change. Can you play a musical instrument? No. Can you do carpentry? I do not know. I have never tried. Death stared at his feet. He was beginning to feel deeply embarrassed. Keeble shuffled the paper on his desk and sighed. I can walk through walls, Death volunteered, aware that the conversation had reached an impasse. Keeble looked up brightly. I'd like to see that, he said. That could be quite a qualification. Right. Death pushed his chair back and stalked confidently towards the nearest wall. Ouch. 
Keeble watched expectantly. Go on, then, he said. Um, this is an ordinary wall, is it? I assume so. I'm not an expert. It seems to be presenting me with some difficulty. So it would appear. What do you call the feeling of being very small and hot? Keeble twiddled his pencil. Pygmy? Begins with an M. Embarrassing? Yes, said Death. I mean, yes. It would seem that you have no useful skill or talent <clears throat> whatsoever, he said. Have you thought of going into teaching? Death's face was a mask of terror. Well, it was always a mask of terror, but this time he meant it to be. You see, said Keeble kindly, putting down his pen and steepling his hands together, it's very seldom I ever have to find a new career for an, um, what was it again? Anthropomorphic personification. Oh, yes. Well, what is that exactly? Death had had enough. This, he said. For a moment, just for a moment, Mr. Keeble saw him clearly. His face went nearly as pale as Death's own. His hands jerked convulsively. His heart gave a stutter. Death watched him with mild interest, then drew an hourglass from the depths of his robe and held it up to the light and examined it critically. Settle down, he said. You've got a good few years yet. I could tell you how many, if you like. Keeble, fighting to breathe, managed to shake his head. Do you want me to get you a glass of water, then? The shop bell jangled. Keeble's eyes rolled. Death decided that he owed the man something. He shouldn't be allowed to lose custom, which was clearly something humans valued dearly. He pushed aside the bead curtain and stalked into the outer shop, where a small fat woman, looking rather like an angry cottage loaf, was hammering on the counter with a haddock. "'It's about that kook's job up at the university,' she said. "'You told me it was a good position and it's a disgrace up there.' The tricks them students play, and I demand. I want you to. I am not. Her voice trailed off. Here, yeah, she said, but you could tell her heart wasn't in it. You are not Keeble, are you? Death stared at her. He'd never before experienced an unsatisfied customer. He was at a loss. Finally, he gave up. Be gone, you black and midnight hag, he said. The cook's small eyes narrowed. Who are you calling a midnight bag? she said accusingly, and hit the counter with the fish again. Look at this, she said. Last night it was my bed warmer. In the morning it's a fish. I ask you. May all the demons of hell rend your living spirit if you don't get out of the shop this minute, Death tried. I don't know about that, but what about my bed warmer? It's no place for a respectable woman up there. They tried to... If you would care to go away, said Death desperately, I will give you some money. How much? said the cook, with a speed that would have outdistanced a striking rattlesnake and given lightning a nasty shock. Death pulled out his coin bag and tipped a heap of verdigreased and darkened coins on the counter. She regarded them with deep suspicion. Now, leave upon the instant, said Death, and added, before the searing winds of infinity scorch thy worthless carcass. My husband will be told about this, said the cook darkly as she left the shop. It seemed to death that no threat of his could possibly be as dire. He stalked back through the curtains. Keeble, still slumped in his chair, gave a kind of strangled gurgle. It was true, he said. 
I thought you were a nightmare. I could take offence at that, said Death. You really are Death, said Keeble. Yes. Why didn't you say? People usually prefer me not to. Keeble scrabbled among his papers, giggling hysterically. You want to do something else, he said. Tooth Fairy? Water Sprite? Sandman? Do not be foolish. I simply feel I want a change. Keeble's frantic rustling at last turned up the paper he'd been searching for. He gave a maniacal laugh and thrust it into Death's hands. Death read it. This is a job? People are paid to do this? Yes, yes. Go and see him. You're, you're just the right type. Only don't tell him I sent you. Binky moved at a hard gallop across the night, the disc unrolling far below his hooves. Now Mort found that the sword could reach out further than he had thought. It could reach the stars themselves, and he swung it across the deeps of space and into the heart of a yellow dwarf which went Nova most satisfactorily. He stood in the saddle and whirled the blade around his head, laughing as the blue flame fanned across the sky, leaving a trail of darkness and embers. And didn't stop. Mort struggled as the sword cut through the horizon, grinding down the mountains, drying up the seas, turning green forests into punk and ashes. He heard voices behind him and the brief screams of friends and relatives as he turned desperately. Dust storms whirled from the dead earth as he fought to release his own grip, but the sword burned icy cold in his hand, dragging him on in a dance that would not end until there was nothing left alive. And that time came and Mort stood alone except for Death, who said, A fine job, boy. And Mort said, Mort! Mort, Mort, wake up. Mort surfaced slowly like a corpse in a pond. He fought against it, clinging to his pillow and the horrors of sleep, but someone was tugging urgently at his ear. Hmm? he said. Mort! What is it? Mort, it's father! He opened his eyes and stared up blankly into Isabel's face. Then the events of the previous night hit him like a sock full of damp sand. Mort swung his legs out of bed, still wreathed in the remains of his dream. Yeah, okay, he said. I'll go see him directly. He's not here. Albert's going crazy. Isabel stood by the bed, tugging a handkerchief between her hands. Mort, do you think something has happened to him? He gave her a blank look. Don't be bloody stupid, he said. He's deaf. He scratched his skin. He felt hot and dry and itchy. But he's never been away this long, not even when there was that big plague in Pseudopolis. I mean, he has to be here in the mornings to do the books and work out the nodes and... Mort grabbed her arms. All right, all right, he said, as soothingly as he could manage. I'm sure everything's okay. Just settle down, I'll go and check. Why have you got your eyes shut? Mort, please put some clothes on, said Isabel in a tight little voice. Mort looked down. Sorry, he said meekly. I didn't realise. Who put me to bed? I did, she said. But I looked the other way. Mort dragged on his breeches, shrugged into his shirt, and hurried out towards Death's study with Isabel on his heels. Albert was in there, jumping from foot to foot like a duck on a griddle. When Mort came in, the look on the old man's face could almost have been gratitude. Mort saw with amazement that there were tears in his eyes. His chair hasn't been satin, Albert whined. Sorry, but is that important, said Mort. 
My granddad didn't used to come home for days if he'd had a good sale at the market. But he's always here, said Albert, every morning as long as I've known him, sitting here at his desk or working on the nodes. It's his job. He wouldn't miss it. I expect the nodes can look after themselves for a day or two, said Mort. The drop in temperature told him he was wrong. He looked at their faces. They can't, he said. Both heads shook. If the nodes aren't worked out properly, all the balance is destroyed, said Isabel. Anything could happen. Didn't he explain, said Albert. Not really. I've really only done the practical side. He said he'd tell me about the theoretical stuff later, said Mort. Isabel burst into tears. Albert took Mort's arm and, with considerable dramatic waggling of his eyebrows, indicated that they should have a little talk in the corner. Mort trailed after him reluctantly. The old man rummaged in his pockets and at last produced a battered paper bag. Peppermint? he inquired. Mort shook his head. He never tell you about the nodes, said Albert. Mort shook his head again. Albert gave his peppermint a suck. It sounded like the plug hole in the bath of God. How old are you, lad? Mort, I'm sixteen. There's some things a lad ought to be told before he's sixteen, said Albert, looking over his shoulder at Isabel, who was sobbing in death's chair. Oh, I know about that. My father told me all about that when he used to take the Thargast to be mated. When a man and a woman... About the universe is what I meant, said Albert hurriedly. I mean, have you ever thought about it? I know the disc is carried through space on the backs of four elephants that stand on the shell of Great Artuin, said Mort. That's just part of it. I meant the whole universe of time and space and life and death and day and night and everything. Can't say I've ever given it much thought, said Mort. Ah, you ought. The point is the nodes are part of it. They stop death from getting out of control, see? Not him, not death, just death itself. Like, uh, Albert's struggle for words. Like... Death should come exactly at the end of life, you see, and not before or after, and the nodes have to be worked out so that the key figures... You're not taking this in, are you? Sorry? They've got to be worked out, said Albert flatly, and then the correct lives have got to be got. The hourglasses, you call them. The actual duty is the easy job. Can you do it? No. Can you? No. Albert sucked reflectively at his peppermint. That's the whole world in a gippo, then, he said. Look, I can't see why you're so worried. I expect he's just got held up somewhere, said Mort, but it sounded feeble even to him. It wasn't as though people buttonholed death to tell him another story or clapped him on the back and said things like, You've got time for a quick half in there, me old mate, no need to rush off home, or invited him to make up a Skittles team and come out for a Clatchian takeaway afterwards, or... It struck Mort with sudden, terrible poignancy that death must be the loneliest creature in the universe. In the great party of creation, he was always in the kitchen. "'I'm sure I don't know what's come over the master lately,' mumbled Albert. "'Out of the chair, my girl, let's have a look at these nodes.' They opened the ledger. They looked at it for a long time. Then Mort said, "'What do all these symbols mean?' "'Sodomy non sapiens,' said Albert under his breath. What does that mean? Means I'm buggered if I know. That was wizard talk, wasn't it? said Mort. 
You shut up about wizard talk. I don't know anything about wizard talk. You apply your brain to this here. Mort looked down again at the tracery of lines. It was as if a spider had spun a web on the page, stopping at every junction to make notes. Mort stared until his eyes hurt, waiting for some spark of inspiration. None volunteered. Any luck? It's all clatching to me, said Mort. I don't even know whether it should be read upside down or sideways. Spiralling from the centre outwards, sniffed Isabel from her seat in the corner. Their heads collided as they both peered at the centre of the page. They stared at her. She shrugged. Father taught me how to read the node chart, she said, when I used to do my sewing in here. He used to read bits out. You can help, said Mort. No, said Isabel. She blew her nose. What do you mean, no, growled Albert. This is too important for any flighty... I mean, said Isabel in razor tones, that I can do them and you can help. The Ankh Morpork Guild of Merchants has taken to hiring large gangs of men with ears like fists and fists like large bags of walnuts, whose job it is to re-educate those misguided people who publicly fail to recognise the many attractive points of their fine city. For example, the philosopher Catroaster was found floating face down in the river within hours of uttering the famous line, When a man is tired of Ankh Morpork, he is tired of ankle-deep slurry. Therefore, it is prudent to dwell on one, of the very many, of course, on one of the things that makes Ankh Morpork renowned among the great cities of the multiverse. This is its food. The trade routes of half the disc pass through the city or down its rather sluggish river. More than half the tribes and races of the disc have representatives dwelling within its sprawling acres. In Ankh Morpork, the cuisines of the world collide. On the menu are 1,000 types of vegetable, 1,500 cheeses, 2,000 spices, 300 types of meat, 200 fowl, 500 different kinds of fish, 100 variations on the theme of pasta, 70 eggs of one kind or another, 50 insects, 30 mollusks, 20 assorted snakes and other reptiles, and something pale brown and warty known as the Clatchian Migratory Bog Truffle. Its eating establishments range from the opulent, where the portions are tiny but the plates are silver, to the secretive, where some of the disc's more exotic inhabitants are rumoured to eat anything they can get down their throat best out of three. Harger's House of Ribs, down by the docks, is probably not numbered among the city's leading eateries, catering as it does for the type of beefy clientele that prefers quantity and breaks up the tables if it doesn't get it. They don't go in for the fancy or exotic, but stick to conventional food like flightless bird embryos, minced organs in intestine skins, slices of hog flesh and burnt ground grass seeds dipped in animal fats, or, as it is known in their patois, egg, sauce and bacon and a fried slice. It was the kind of eating house that didn't need a menu. You just looked at Harger's vest. Still, he had to admit, this new cook seemed to be the business. Harger, an expansive advert for his own high-carbohydrate merchandise, beamed at a room full of satisfied customers, and a fast worker too. In fact, disconcertingly fast. He rapped on the hatch. Double egg, chips, beans and a troll burger hold the onions, he rasped. Right. The hatch slid up a few seconds later, and two plates were pushed through. Hager shook his head in gratified amazement. It had been like that all evening. The eggs were bright and shiny, the beans glistened like rubies, and the chips were the crisp golden brown of sunburned bodies on expensive beaches. Hager's last cook had turned out chips like little paper bags full of pus. 
Hager looked around the steamy cafe. No one was watching him. He was going to get to the bottom of this. He rapped on the hatch again. Alligator sandwich, he said, and make it snappy. The hatch shot up. After a few seconds to pluck up enough courage, Hager peered under the top slice of the long sarnie in front of him. He wasn't saying that it was alligator, and he wasn't saying it wasn't. He knuckled the hatch again. Okay, he said. I'm not complaining. I just want to know how you did it so fast. Time is not important. You say, right. Hager decided not to argue. Well, you're doing a damn fine job in there, boy, he said. What is it called when you feel warm and content and wish things would stay that way? I guess you'd call it happiness, said Hager. Inside the tiny cramped kitchen, strattered with the grease of decades, death spun and whirled, chopping, slicing and flying, his skillet flashed through the fetid steam. He'd opened the door to the cold night air and a dozen neighbourhood cats had strolled in, attracted by the bowls of milk and meat, some of Hager's best, if he'd known, that had been strategically placed around the floor. Occasionally, Death would pause in his work and scratch one of them behind the ears. Happiness, he said, and puzzled at the sound of his own voice. Cutwell, the wizard and royal recogniser by appointment, pulled himself up the last of the tower steps and leaned against the wall, waiting for his heart to stop thumping. Actually, it wasn't particularly high, this tower, just high for Stowe Lutt. In general design and outline, it looked the standard sort of tower for imprisoning princesses in. It was mainly used to store old furniture. However, it offered unsurpassed views of the city and the Stowe Plain, which is to say you could see an awful lot of cabbages. Cutwell made it as far as the crumbling crenellations atop the wall and looked out at the morning haze. It was maybe a little hazier than usual. If he tried hard, he could imagine a flicker in the sky. If he really strained his imagination, he could hear a buzzing out over the cabbage fields, a sound like someone frying locusts. He shivered. End of CD 5